Hey guys, it's Adam here with another Tiburon News Podcast. Really excited to be back in the game and to be here talking about topics that are of interest to me and to all you guys. So I wanted to jump right into it and talk about something that's really important to me and also really topical, and that's the Electoral College. Now, some might think I'm just talking about the Electoral College because with the outcome of the 2016 election, it's fairly well known that Donald Trump at this point will lose the popular vote but win the Electoral College. And so I wanted to talk about just a little bit about why we have the Electoral College in this country, but I wanted to talk about one of the main initiatives to get rid of the Electoral College and why it is ultimately, in my view, doomed to fail. Now, a few people have already talked about why this specific initiative is doomed to fail. Uh, Nate Silver at 538 is probably the most noteworthy person to talk about why it's doomed. So I wanted to jump in and offer my two cents about why I love the Electoral College and why you probably should too. So, the Electoral College is designed to prevent large populist states from having disproportionate influence over a national presidential election. To understand this perspective behind the Electoral College, you also have to understand how the division of powers and the apportionment of representation work in the United States government. So to recap, for any international listeners or people who are learning about this for the first time, or maybe if you need a refresher, in the United States government, we have two houses in the legislature. You have the Senate, where every state has two senators, and as such, every state has equal representation. Then we have the House of Representatives, where every state has proportional representation. The state of Michigan, for example, has 14 representatives in the House of Representatives. The state of Wyoming has one representative. So, you have states that are very small, or states that aren't very well populated, that have proportional representation in the House of Representatives, but equal representation in the Senate. This is to ensure that larger, more populous states are better represented because more people live there. But you also have the Senate, which is equally important in the legislature, making sure that the state is equally represented among all the other states. And this is to make sure the federal government isn't vulnerable to something called the tyranny of the majority. The tyranny of the majority means that your rights can be voted away simply because you're outnumbered. That's not to say that this has never happened. Of course it's happened in American history. It's something that has happened, and it's one of the reasons why the Founding Fathers were so wary of pure democracy. Because all you have to do is convince 51% of people that 49% of people don't deserve the same rights, and poof, their rights are gone. That's the problem with pure democracy. I mean, after all, the Electoral College doesn't have anything to do with the legislature. It's just this group of people that we anoint to select the president every four years, right? Well, actually, the Electoral College and how it's set up has a lot to do with the legislative branch. A lot of people may not know this, but there are 538 votes in the Electoral College. Each state receives an electoral vote for each congressperson they have. So a state with two senators and one representative, like Wyoming, has three electoral votes. A state with two senators and 14 representatives, like Michigan, has 16 electoral votes. And that's where the number 538 comes from. So there's just a little tidbit of why we have the number that we do, uh, just in case you thought that the number of electoral votes was some random cool number that somebody figured out a long time ago. Oddly enough, uh, some of you may be scratching your head saying, wait, there are only 535 representatives in the Congress because you have 100 senators and 435 representatives, and that's because of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. has three electoral votes, even though it's not a state because it was ruled that they have the right to participate in the Electoral College, even though they are not a state and do not have any representation in the Senate, and they have one delegate in the House of Representatives, but that delegate doesn't actually have the right to vote. He can just go in and speak and give speeches. Or she. 
So why do we have the Electoral College? Well, it all circles back to this idea of pure democracy. A pure democracy is something of which the Founding Fathers were especially fearful at the time that they founded the country. This was for a variety of reasons. They didn't want people electing somebody that was going to potentially divide the country at a time when the country was so new that there was a serious risk of loyalists selecting somebody that was going to reincorporate us into the British Empire or another empire, or maybe somebody that gets elected that decides to separate us into separate nations rather than being one united nation. So there were lots of reasons for the Electoral College in the beginning, but it's not just some jingoistic system to prevent us from being taken over by terrorists or something like that. It's, it's a lot more practical than that. As we know, in situations where you have politicians elected by popular vote, local politicians often find themselves doing favors for the areas or the demographics that vote them in in the highest numbers. And you continue to see that, or at least the appearance of that, in areas like Detroit, New York, Los Angeles, and other parts of the country where the popular vote for local politicians does often create an inequality among and between areas. That's one of the benefits of having a third party between the elector and the elected. Proponents of a popular vote system will argue that the number of electors that someone in the state of Wyoming gets versus the number of voters that actually cast a vote is in a higher ratio than the ratio of California voters to the electors that they have. As mentioned, they were wary of pure democracy when they founded the country. And at the time, Virginia was the largest state of the former 13 colonies, and there was a fear that basically Virginia was going to dominate politics by outnumbering everybody else. And that's one of the reasons, side note, why the Three-Fifths Clause exists. It was to prevent states from counting slaves as people living within the territory to increase their representation, but not giving them the right to vote or live freely. So that's why the Three-Fifths Clause exists, to pr actually reduce a little bit the potential for representation by slave states. And that ultimately did lead to the North winning the Civil War, in large part because it kept Congress in check. Uh, but there's a lot of history with that, and we'll get back to that another time. So why does it make sense that somebody's vote in Wyoming matters a little bit more than somebody's vote in California? Ultimately, this is because the country was never set up such that the president should be the supreme arbiter of all that is American and legal and to be done by the government. The president was never intended to have that much power, and we've moved dangerously far in that direction in some ways in terms of the powers that we've ceded to the executive branch. But that said, we do still have a fairly stable system of checks and balances in place that have prevented total tyranny by the executive branch. So it makes sense that with the United States being a federation of states rather than one homogeneous country, which we are in the sense that we are all patriotic and we all pertain to the same country, but it makes sense from the perspective of us being a federation of states that each state would be represented rather than individual people, individual citizens. So that's why the Electoral College exists. And in defense of it, the Electoral College has done its job of picking the right president before. You can look at the election of 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. Samuel Tilden is actually the only candidate ever to lose in the Electoral College but get more than 50% of the popular vote, and I'll tell you why. Because the Electoral College did its job. You see, in 1876, blacks in the South were largely restricted from voting. Many of you are probably familiar with Jim Crow laws, which continued for almost a century after that election, depending, of course, on the state and the area and what have you. But most of the states that Tilden won were Confederate states, with white voters, and Tilden was a Democrat. Democrats, of course, being the party of, quote-unquote, states' rights. 
Democrats not being the party that was anti-slavery at the time. So why did Hayes win? Well, Hayes won because the more populous states that were not slave states voted for him in large numbers. And interestingly enough, a big part of why the 1876 electoral map went for Hayes rather than Tilden was some of the new states that had joined the Union were not slave states when they were founded. At the time, and this is really interesting, Iowa, which did vote for Hayes, had 11 electoral votes. Talk about interesting that Iowa at that time was one of the largest states. Nebraska had three, Colorado had three, Nevada had three, Oregon had three, and Hayes won the Electoral College by only one vote. One vote. How amazing is that? He managed to pick up the Electoral College and win by one vote, even though he lost the popular vote, with his opponent actually getting a majority of the popular votes. The Electoral College was set up to make sure not just that people are represented, but also that states are represented. And look at some of the states that Hayes carried. Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Maine, most of New England, and as mentioned, some of the new states. Samuel Tilden did win New York, and obviously that was because of Tammany Hall, a big Democratic institution that was operating out of New York. But most of the states that he carried in the South were Jim Crow states. They were segregationist states, and... Samuel Tilden was likely a low-key segregationist. Even though it wasn't part of his platform, that was the party platform at the time. So it prevented that and kept the Reconstruction moving towards a people-focused, a rights-focused, and a recovering-from-the-Civil-War-focus during the Reconstruction period. So even though Hayes isn't a particularly noteworthy president, he was important in that he is likely superior to the alternative that we had in another universe where maybe Oregon or Nebraska managed to vote Democrat. The reality of it is that we don't vote for the president, and we never have. We haven't voted for the president for 240 years, and we're better off for it. When we go to the polls in every state, what we're actually voting for is a pre-selected group of electors. It doesn't say it on the ballot, right? It used to in some jurisdictions a long time ago, but I think they figured out it was confusing for people. In fact, to this day, the primary elections in Pennsylvania, you don't vote for a candidate. You vote for delegates, individual delegates. And people get sheets in the mail that say this delegate is likely to support this candidate, so vote for him. Donald Trump doesn't go into Pennsylvania and say, vote for me on the day of the primary election. He says, vote for John... Tranfort, because John Tranfort is likely to support me because of his previous support for the Second Amendment. And it's confusing for people. You would think that it would be easier just to vote for the candidate. So that's what many states have done. And in the general election, every state does it that way. I'll use myself as an example. I'm from New Jersey, and when I voted in New Jersey, there were a few politicians on the ballot. Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, I think Daryl Castle, and a few others. But in reality, I didn't vote for a single one of those candidates. My options were to choose the electors that had been appointed by that party to represent that party in the Electoral College in December following the election. My state of New Jersey has 14 electoral votes, and so every party that was on the ballot, essentially, and the important thing is the Democrats and the Republicans, obviously, in advance of the election, they picked 14 people that are loyal to the party and are essentially going to be the ones that represent that candidate in the Electoral College. When I vote, I vote for those electors. If I vote for Trump, I vote for the Republican electors. If I vote for Hillary Clinton, I'm really voting for the Democratic electors. 
And when Hillary won the state of New Jersey, the Democratic electors were basically activated, right? It's almost like getting a bat signal in the middle of the night that says, you have to vote. And then there's all sorts of rituals where they have to show up by a certain time in a certain building and put a neat little certificate and an envelope that counts the votes and they send it by first class mail. Lots of really interesting factoids state by state about how the Electoral College actually works once the situation is going and once the process is moving. But we won't get into that and we'll move on here. Essentially, the important thing to know is that you don't vote directly for a candidate. You vote for representatives that go to the Electoral College and represent the interests of your state, each state individually, and that's how it works. Now, most of the states are winner-take-all, meaning if you win the state's popular vote contest, you get all the votes. It wasn't that way for a while in every state, and, and basically what happened was Jefferson decided that since he lost the election, Virginia should switch to a winner-take-all system because the reason that he lost was that the north states were winner-take-all and the southern states were proportional, so their position was weakened in terms of their ability to elect a president compared with the north that was more unified. There's a lot of history as far as why a lot of states have decided to go winner-take-all, and ultimately the best way, if people feel underrepresented in their own states, is to work with their local government representative to set up a districting solution or a proportional vote solution or different things like that that can keep people feeling like they're more represented. That's why the states are set up the way they are. I'll give you a perfect example. In the state of New Jersey, over 40% of New Jerseyan voters voted for the Republican candidate, but effectively it's as if their vote didn't matter at all. Because New Jersey doesn't have districts or proportionality or anything like that. New Jersey's a winner-take-all state. Contrast that with Nebraska and Maine. Nebraska and Maine have different districts. So if you win a certain district, it may differ from the winner of the overall state or a certain part of the state. Maine has a second congressional district, and Donald Trump won the popular vote contest in that district. So he got one electoral vote. Contrast that with Maine, which, the Maine state, Hillary won the Maine contest. The Maine Maine contest, if you will. So she got three electoral votes from Maine. Now, every state has the right to do that. States have the right to decide, one way or another, how their electoral votes will be apportioned in relation to the contest in their state. And, in fact, this is an interesting thing that we're going to talk about in a second. Technically, electoral votes don't necessarily have to be tied to a state contest. And that's what's going to come in handy here when we talk about something called national popular vote. Now, this initiative called National Popular Vote is not an initiative to amend Article 2 of the Constitution, abolish the Electoral College, and replace it with a pure democracy. Bills to abolish the Electoral College have been proposed as recently as this year. Barbara Boxer, for example, proposed a bill to abolish the Electoral College. That bill is not going to go anywhere, because to amend the Constitution, you've got to get it voted and approved, and then for an amendment to be passed, it's got to be ratified by 38 of the 50 states, and you're never going to see that in our lifetime, or possibly ever. You're never going to see the Constitution amended over something like that. So NPV, and I'll use that term interchangeably, National Popular Vote, NPV, uh, it's called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, so I'll call it the NPVIC. I'll use those terms interchangeably, so hopefully it doesn't get confusing. National popular vote is this cute little workaround that some guy, I believe at Dartmouth, came up with as a thought experiment. He said, what if a group of states decided to apportion their electoral college votes based on the national popular vote? What if the state of New York says, oh, well, instead of considering only the results of the New York contest, they look at the national popular vote and whoever wins the national popular vote receives the slate of electors from the state of New York. 
This idea makes sense on paper, because states, under Article 2 of the Constitution, basically have no restrictions as far as how they can apportion their electoral votes. There's basically nothing outlined in the Constitution about that. The only thing that's mentioned throughout the Constitution is that they're meant to be impartial. And I'll read Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution to clarify a little bit. The executive power shall be vested in a president of the United States of America. He shall hold office during the term of four years and, together with the vice president chosen for the same term, be elected as follows. Each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be an appointed elector. The electors shall meet in their respective states and vote by ballot for two persons, one of whom at least shall not be an inhabitant of the state with themselves. And they shall make a list of all the persons voted for and the number of votes for each, which list they shall sign and certify and transmit sealed to the seat of government of the United States directed to the President of the Senate. The President of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and the House of Representatives, open all of the certificates, and the vote shall then be counted. The person having the greatest number of votes shall be the President. It goes on to explain basically what happens in the event of a tie or if nobody wins, and the way you win, obviously, is by getting 270 electoral votes, or whatever the majority is. Obviously, there was a time in our history when we didn't have uh, 535 members of Congress, so the winning number was less than 270. So you would think that that's the end of the conversation, right? Because it says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, etc., etc. So you would think that that means that the states can basically decide to apportion electors however they want. They don't even technically have to consider how the people of their given state vote. And that's where this idea comes in. They want to get enough states together to decide to just force the electors to vote for whoever wins the popular vote. So that in the event of an election like 2016, states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania that went red would be forced to vote blue by this interstate compact. There's a glaring issue with this. First of all, the glaring issue is that you're basically taking away the right of the people in these states to represent themselves in the Electoral College. That's a big, big issue, because state to state you have different laws about how people can vote. Voter ID laws vary from state to state. Voter registration laws or rules about who can vote, whether they're a felon for a given crime. Different crimes may be a felony in one state and a misdemeanor in another. So, for example, somebody that drives 85 miles an hour on a highway in Virginia may be a felon and not be able to vote in the state of Virginia. But somebody that drives 85 miles an hour on a highway in New Jersey gets passed because everybody else is doing 90 and it's not a felony. And so that person in New Jersey would be totally fine to vote even though they regularly commit the same crime that blocks somebody from voting in the state of Virginia. So you're talking about the rights of individual states to practice self-determination, which is really, really important and fundamental as far as being a part of how the Constitution was set up and how our federal government was set up. But let's ignore that for a moment, even though, of course, it's never a good idea to ignore the Constitution. It's really important as a document and it's fundamental to our republic. Let's ignore that for a moment and explore the idea, because on its face, it sounds like it should make sense. States should be able to do whatever they want. But in reality, the way that states vote, actually vote, complicates whether electors can be forced to vote one way or another. I'll use a swing state as an example, because I actually got into it on the Facebook page of these guys a short while back. They really don't appear like they want to engage any longer, because I think they may have realized that they met their match, just a little bit at least. The first thing I want to mention is that the way most states' elections are set up, and I say most because I haven't individually checked all 50 states, 
I'm looking at Wisconsin state law right now, and the way Wisconsin state law is set up, it says electors shall vote by ballot for that person for president and that person for vice president who are respectively the candidates of the political party which nominated them under section 8, subsection 18, the candidates whose names appeared on the nomination papers under section 8, subsection 20, or the candidates who filed their names under section 8, subsection 18 and a half. And an important phrase there. It says, shall vote by ballot for the person for president and the person for vice president who are respectively the candidates of the political party which nominated them. That's the issue. And this issue appears in every state that I've checked so far. Oddly enough, it seems that even in states that have passed the NPVIC, you have clauses like that. So what does that mean? I mean, why does it sound like I'm going nuts over this, right? It's already agreed and decided that the electors that win Wisconsin are the electors that are the beneficiaries of the popular vote of the state of Wisconsin. So in Wisconsin, when the Republicans won the popular vote of that state, the Republican electors were nominated. And Republican electors would obviously be loyal to their party and loyal to the candidate, or obviously, in all likelihood, they wouldn't have been chosen to be electors. So, what do I mean by that? Well, Section 8, Subsection 25 of Wisconsin state law also enumerates that a vote for president and vice president of any party is a vote for the electors of the nominees. So already in state law, you have it enshrined that people are voting directly for these electors. Now you might look at that and say, okay, so the Republican electors win, but under state law, if they sign this compact, they would be obligated to vote for the Democrats. So hey, problem solved, right? Pop the champagne, screw this guy, we're gonna leave. Well, not quite, because the reason that I'm still droning on about this is and I encourage you to bear with me for a moment, we have this interesting topic of faithless electors. Now, the concept of a faithless elector is one where you have an elector that's presumed to vote for one candidate, but in the end does not. Whether it's saying, I can't vote for Donald Trump in good conscience, or Hillary Clinton in good conscience, or what have you. And maybe they decide to vote for the other candidate, maybe they vote for a third party candidate, maybe they vote for themselves, maybe they just write Mickey Mouse, who knows right? That person would be a faithless elector. Random fact here, in 2004, uh, Minnesota was carried by John Kerry and he was entitled to all of the electoral votes, but one of the electors accidentally voted for John Ewerts as president and John Kerry as vice president. So not only did he mix up the two names, but he also spelled the last name of the vice president wrong. So John Edwards is actually the first vice presidential candidate to receive an electoral vote for president and have his name spelled wrong. So that's and some interesting prestige for him. And thankfully, that electoral college race wasn't close because had that been the vote that pushed Bush into a second term, I am pretty confident that that would have created a bit of a scandal in 2004. So that elector wasn't exactly faithless. But it has happened a few times in our history where an elector, for one reason or another, has voted for somebody other than the person for whom they were presumed to be voting. And that isn't necessarily a problem, because under Article 2, electors are presumed to have a constitutional freedom to basically vote for whomever they want. And that's part of why we have this buffer zone. It's something that Clinton supporters are trying to take advantage of by having the electors say, look, we can't let Trump win, you have to vote for the candidate that won the popular vote. And that's an entirely different discussion. But these electors, if they were to do so, would be considered faithless if they were Trump electors that decided to change their vote to Hillary Clinton. Now, some states have laws that say if you're going to become an elector, you have to sign a pledge. A pledge that you're going to support the nominee. But as we've seen this election with pledges, pledges mean diddly squat when it comes down to actually doing what you promised to do. So, what do faithless electors have to do with this? 
Well, if somebody from the state of Wisconsin who is serving as an elector votes for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump, that person is a faithless elector because it's a winner-take-all state with no districting. They were a Republican elector presumed to be being sent to the Electoral College to vote for Donald Trump, and they didn't do that, so as a consequence, they are a faithless elector. The Supreme Court has ruled that you can allow pledges, but it was never technically ruled whether you can allow punishments for electors because such a punishment might violate the assumed constitutional freedom of the elector. You're probably going to see an issue if you try to use those laws and thankfully it happens so infrequently that any laws on the books may, to my knowledge, never have been used ever with any seriousness. But if you're talking about a faithless elector, wouldn't the Republican electors under NPVIC be being forced to vote for the Democratic candidate and wouldn't that mean induced faithlessness? If a faithless elector is assumed to violate the assumed constitutional freedom of the elector, then a law that actually requires an elector to be faithless in the event of a national difference between the electoral college and the popular vote would also risk unconstitutionality. And in fact, an interpretation of the 1952 case Ray versus Blair in the Supreme Court actually lays out pretty clearly that if a faithless elector law is unconstitutional, but a faithless elector pledge is constitutional, NPV is going to have the same problem. And the fact of the matter is, in the state of Wisconsin, when people vote for the Republican electors, why the absolute hell would the Republican electors voted into their role to represent their state and to vote for the candidate of their party to whom they have pledged to be loyal, in many cases, and to whom they are loyal merely based on their party affiliation and likely some ideological imperative, why, based on some law that the state of Wisconsin has no constitutional authority to enforce, would they vote for the Democratic candidate because of this compact? And that is the fundamental flaw with NPVIC. See, the NPVIC so far hasn't caused any problems because it has been enacted in states where you have voters going in the same direction for years. Vermont, Maryland, New York, California, and a few others. It's debated in Arizona. It's being debated in North Carolina. There are states that you're going to have a tougher time getting a law like this passed because there are states where the election outcome is taken a little more seriously, especially North Carolina, which has been a swing state as of late. So why would they give up the prestige of being a swing state to join this compact? And that's probably the smallest reason why NPVIC is doomed to fail. That's one of the most minimal reasons why it's doomed to fail. So let's go state by state, because it's not just Wisconsin. I didn't just cherry pick Wisconsin. Let's look at Florida. Florida is another swing state, and it's famous for quote-unquote picking the president basically every year. In fact, in 2000, just a few hundred votes in Florida determined the U.S. president, and it's still debated to this day who actually won the 2000 presidential election. I'm looking at Florida state law right now, section 103, subsection 11. Electors of president and vice president known as presidential electors shall be elected on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November of each year, the number of which is a multiple of four. Votes cast for the actual candidates for president and the vice president shall be counted as votes for the presidential electors. New York state law, a state which has passed national popular votes interstate compact. At the general election in November, preceding the time fixed by the law of the United States for the choice of president and vice president of the United States, as many electors of president and vice president of the United States shall be elected as the state shall be entitled to. Each vote cast for the candidates of any party or independent body for president and vice president of the United States, and each vote cast for any write-in candidate for such offices shall be deemed to be cast for the candidates for elector of such party or independent body, or the candidates 
candidate for the elector named in the certificate of candidacy of such write-in candidates. Another state in which NPV can't work because the people through voting for Hillary Clinton picked Democratic electors. If a Republican wins the popular vote, the Democratic electors cannot be obligated by any state or federal body to vote for anybody else. By the state contest, Democratic electors are picked. So how does NPVIC solve this problem? By taking away your right to vote for president under the current system at all. Now, what do I mean by that? Because obviously your vote's going to be part of the national popular vote. But in reality, your vote's just going to be a sort of suggestion sitting in a box, sort of like the Brexit referendum. A lot of legislators in the United Kingdom are saying, oh, well, it wasn't a binding referendum, so we don't necessarily have to take the result into account. That doesn't seem to be the prevailing wisdom because the new prime minister is saying Brexit means Brexit. But there are a lot of people holding it up, saying we want to do another vote, we want to do another vote, and that vote will be binding. So what do I mean by this Brexit thing? I mean, well, if you're voting for the Democratic electors, but the Democratic electors are obligated by law to vote for the Republican candidate that won the popular vote in this hypothetical bizarro universe, ultimately, that obligated faithlessness means you're no longer being represented. And MPV responded to that. They said, well, Adam, you miss a key point. No state is directing electors to be faithless, as you suggest in that example, because that wouldn't work. The point is that the slate of electors from that state that wins will be the slate affiliated with the candidate who earns the most votes in the country. That is why NPV works. There's a glaring issue with that. The actual text of the bill that they passed in each state doesn't address the fact that this is a contradiction of existing election law in every state that I checked. The fact is that the people when they vote are voting for electors. Now, states do have the right to take away the right of the people to vote for a team of electors. Technically, if the state of New York said tomorrow, we're not going to have a popular vote contest anymore, we're just going to have electors and they're going to be whatever party we pick and that's the end of that. It wouldn't necessarily be unconstitutional, but obviously people wouldn't want to do that. People wouldn't want to have a system where they're not voting and people definitely don't want a system where they're voting for those that are not going to represent their state and their interest in the Electoral College. See, that's the problem with this NPVIC. If you truly believe that a pure democracy and a national popular vote are important things, you should work to create a system where an actual national popular vote is at least taken into account. And maybe we do need to abolish the Electoral College. Maybe it's outdated, like some people are saying. I don't know. Although I happen to think the Electoral College is great. And I happen to think not just because I'm a beneficiary of it this year, because I voted for the person that won. But throughout our history, we have seen the Electoral College isn't a flawed system, just that it provides results that don't appear democratic on their face to people that don't understand what the Electoral College means and represents. Donald Trump won 30 states and the 2nd Congressional District of Maine. Hillary Clinton won 20 states and Washington, D.C., but the states that she won, New York, New Jersey, California, are more populous. They have looser voting laws in many cases. No state, no matter how small, should be at risk of being perpetually and irrevocably outnumbered by pure democracy. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact keeps the infrastructure of the Electoral College but takes away all the member states of this compact while doing nothing to address the actual system. States that join the NPVIC are worse off because they will be less represented in the Electoral College, which will remain if this law is passed in enough states. Make no mistake. Nate Silver did say in 2014 that he doesn't believe this law will get enough traction to be passed in enough states. They still need 105 electoral votes, and it's going to be an uphill battle to get them, because the states they have left are mostly red states that have historically benefited from the Electoral College, and swing states that are not going to want to give up their prestige as being swing states for the most part. 
You still have a couple of little blue states left, but definitely not enough to make up for 105 electoral votes without some serious difficulty and without bringing this law into national prominence in terms of people knowing about it and knowing about its goals. So ultimately, I think that this is going to be stuttered and stopped in its tracks eventually, at least I hope. So that's my two cents on National Popular Vote's Interstate Compact. As mentioned, I was fighting with them on their Facebook a short while ago, and it seems like the people on the page, as far as their followers, either love me or hate me. Some people are interested in the idea, and they thought it was immature of the organization to stop engaging in what I felt was a pretty intellectual discussion. They accused me of insulting them, but I was just showing them how actual Supreme Court precedent and state election law contradict everything that they've set out to do, and I suppose I can understand why they might find that insulting. So that's what I think, and I hope you enjoyed listening to me talk about this issue. If you're interested in National Popular Vote as an initiative or as an ultimate goal, be sure to comment on our Facebook page or our website, tbronnews.com. We'd love to have you around for the continuing discussion on this topic and other topics that we cover. We continue to be passionate about the constitution as you know uh bill has done a couple of podcasts about the constitution as well we're going to continue to talk about that as well as current events and i'll keep you guys updated if there's a new smoking gun in this case or something that proves that i'm totally off base i'll do an update podcast in a while and talk about whether any progress has been made for or against the mpvic Thank you guys for listening. Really appreciate having you around. Welcome to comment and have a discussion with us, and we'll see you again next week.